to worship with them. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 31, the last chapter in the book, page 303, if you're using the Bibles that are there in the pew. Tonight we're going to finish off a series. It's a series that we have been looking at in the life of David from the days when he was chosen to be a future king of Israel, around about the time that he ended up fighting Goliath the giant. And it's really from that time up until the time when he is made king. If you read on into First Samuel chapter, sorry, Second Samuel, you'll find early in that book that David is made king. So this is clearly not the end of David's life, but we're going to use it as the end of of this particular series. Now let me very, very quickly remind you of the plot. In chapters 27 to 31, 1 Samuel runs with a double plot because we're following two characters at the same time. On the one hand, we're, we're following Saul, the king of Israel. And you'll remember that he's finally stopped hunting David. He stopped trying to kill David. And instead, he's preparing for a battle with the Philistines. David, in the meantime, and this is the stuff that we have been looking at the last couple of weeks, uh, David, to escape Saul, went and lived among the Philistines for a while. And then last week we learned about how he came home to his town and found that his family had been kidnapped and that the the village had been ransacked. And we learned about uh, David, how he dealt with that situation under God. Now tonight we're going to look at this very short last chapter of 1 Samuel, chapter 31, and we're going to read together the first six verses. So let me read those for you now. Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many were slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines pressed hard after Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor-bearer, "'Draw your sword, run me through,' Or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But the armor bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men died together that same day. It's a a tragic day in the life of Israel. Saul, if you remember, was the first king of Israel. And as we come to the end of the account of his life, we have to say that Saul failed. And very, very specifically, this chapter shows us that he failed because when he was appointed to be king in Israel, his commission was to save his people from the Philistines. And here we're shown in no uncertain terms that he never really achieved that. He himself dies at the hand of the Philistines and his army is defeated by the Philistines. You'll remember how well Saul had started out. 
He was anointed by God. He was filled with the Spirit of God. And he carried the hopes of the nation. But forever, Saul will stand before us as a man who started out with God and wandered from the path, who chose to make his own way and not to follow through with God. It's, it's tragic. Tragic when we see the same thing happen today as happened to Saul. We're not going to spend much time on that. We're going to continue uh, with this story. The story continues in, in 2 Samuel chapter 1, and the narrative swings back to David. David is just about to hear the news of Saul's death, and that's where I want to pick up with you. 2 Samuel chapter 1, and I'll begin to read at verse 1. After the death of Saul, David returned from defeating the Amalekites and stayed in Ziglag two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and with dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell on the ground to pay him honor. Where have you come from? David asked him. He answered, I escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened? David asked. Tell me. He said, the men fled from the battle. Many of them fell and died, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, how do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said. And there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and riders almost upon him. When he turned round and saw me, he called out to me, and I said, what can I do? He asked me, who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, stand over me and kill me. I'm in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood over him and killed him because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord, because the house of Israel and the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who had brought him the report, where are you from? I'm the son of an alien, an Amalekite, he answered. David said to him, were you not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called out to one of his men, go, strike him down. So Adam struck down and he died. For David had said to him, your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. This, again, is the word of God. This Amalekite messenger here, he's a, a schemer, and he lies to David. He claims that he killed Saul. We know that he's been lying because we read the last chapter, and we read there that Saul fell on his own sword. The messenger told David that he'd killed Saul because he thought that that would win him favor with David. How wrong could he be? We know that David twice before had had opportunities to kill Saul himself and twice 
hadn't taken those opportunities. David knew how to let God be God. He wasn't going to lift his hand against a man whom God had raised to the throne. As far as we can tell here, David didn't know that the the man was lying. So because he had taken the life of the king, David took his life from him. Now, David's response here might surprise us. Because if you've been here with us the last few weeks, you might imagine that David would be over the moon with this report from the battlefield. He should be relieved and rejoicing. Remember, this Saul has tried to kill him time and time and time again. This is Saul who's been hunting him like a wild animal for 10 years. This is Saul who sits on the throne of Israel, the throne that's been promised to David. You'd think you'd be celebrating, but David's not celebrating. Whenever he hears the news of Saul's death, he and his men tear their clothes in mourning. They lament. They lament because of the fall of Saul and because of the fall of God's army. There's something very, very powerful going on here, and that's that David refuses to celebrate the demise of a man who in every way is his enemy. See, David has a a wider view on things. He still, after all these years, sees Saul as a man made in the image of God who's been given the Spirit of God, and David finds it a huge tragedy what has happened in the life of Saul. The irony is that David is still, after all this time, a supporter of Saul. If there'd been a prayer meeting praying for the reinvestment of Saul's ministry with God's power, David would have been there. Because David loved this man who'd been chasing him and hounding him to death. David gave him honor and respect right to the death. In a sense, I... I, I just want to leave that episode because it brings us to the end of the life of of Saul and it brings us to a, a very important turning point in the life of David. But I want to spend the rest of our time together wrapping up everything that we have talked about in these last few weeks. As I come to the end of this series in the life of David, I want to ask you a question. It's a very important one for you and for anyone who would follow Jesus Christ. What kind of a person do you think God wants you to be? What kind of a person do you think God wants you to be? I want you to think about that for a moment. Those of us who have been around the church and who have heard uh, God's word preached have some idea that, that whenever we become followers of Jesus, God wants to change us and make us into a particular type of person. What kind of a person does God want us to be? Is it God's aim, for example, to make us good? People who don't do bad things. People who don't drink too much, who don't smoke, who don't say bad words. People who don't cheat the tax man. That's the impression that people outside of the church often have. If you've grown up in Ulster here, you'll know the phrase, one of the badges that's slapped on on people who are, are God's people. We're called good living. Is that what God wants for us? Does God want us to be good? Or is it God's aim to make us all nice people? People who'd never say boo to a goose, 
people who'd never ever offend anyone, people who are, are nice and somehow serenely steer clear of any sort of trouble or any, any situations that are uh, complex and, and certainly steer clear of, of bad people, people who are nice. Do you think that's what God wants for us? Is that what God wants us to be? Or is it God's aim to make us respectable? Is that what God's all about? Does God want us to be strong, successful pillars of the community, the kind of people to whom others look up? Is that God's aim for us? What kind of a person do you think God wants us to be? I've asked that question as I'm bringing this series to a close for a reason, because I think the life of David as recorded for us in God's word is the biblical answer to that question. You see, the Bible describes David as the man after God's own heart. I think it's saying this is the kind of person God wants us to be. And the strange thing is that the Bible doesn't mention any of the things that we have just talked about here. Those things are all good in their own terms, but the Bible doesn't seem to make those a priority in themselves. God's word doesn't try to convince us, for example, that David was particularly good or nice or respectable. Instead, it tells us his story. And it tells us the story of a young man, and and this is something we began looking at months ago. A young man, the youngest in his family, the runt of his family, a young man who's chosen and anointed by God. God's spirit comes on this young man and remains on him in a very, very powerful way. You'll remember how this young man stands in a valley in front of a Philistine army and faces Goliath. But he doesn't see a giant there. He doesn't see an obstacle that can't be overcome because the spirit of God is on him. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. We, we looked at, at many, many episodes of how David grew up in Saul's court and never once lost sight of who he was. He allows God to encourage him. He allows God to keep him on track. He allows God to help him through good friendship as with his relationship with Jonathan. You'll remember how he fled from Saul's court and the, where did he run? He ran to the sanctuary of God. He went to find support there in God's presence. Time and time again, we just see that David, David lives his life before God. You'll remember last week I pointed out a couple of phrases that recur in his story. Whenever David doesn't know what to do, a wee phrase often occurs, David inquired of the Lord. Whenever David is weak and he's running and empty, another phrase repeats itself in the narrative, David found strength in the Lord. And, and so on it goes. As we bring this together, I want to ask you, what kind of a picture of a person do we get as we have looked at these stories in 1 Samuel? If I could sum it up for you, I think we see a picture of a young man whose life is absolutely saturated 
with the presence of God. For David, it doesn't matter whether he's winning or whether he's losing. It doesn't matter whether he's absolutely secure or whether he's in danger of his life. It doesn't matter if the circumstances are ideal or if they're awful. All of that, he seems to live in the presence of God. Friends, I think this is what the Bible means when it talks about David as the man after God's own heart. This is, this is what God wants for each one of us. He wants us to live more and more and more and more of our lives in his presence, open to him. You see, in this chapter we've just read, in chapter 31, we, we find David turning to God when he grieves the death of a loved one. But we can also we can also celebrate with God the birth of a baby. God wants to join in the party whenever you get a promotion at work. But be assured he will be there with you if ever you lose your job. The same God will stand right beside you. Whenever you feel proud of your children, praise God for them. And whenever you feel at your wit's end because you don't know how to bring them up anymore, turn to God and ask him. Whether it's our finances, our family, our education, our careers, our relationships, our sexuality, whatever, we can live all of this before God. That's what David did. And we can learn to do that too. So what do we say now? What kind of a person does God want us to be? If we take the Bible seriously, we will we'll be taking seriously the life of David. In one sense, and I think I've said this before as I've preached in this series, in one sense, yes, God does want us to be like David, but in another sense, he certainly doesn't want us to imitate David and to copy him. David's fallen just like the rest of us. Our, our aim as Christians, those who love the Lord, is to follow the son of David, the perfect embodiment of what it is to be human, Jesus Christ. He lived among us and showed us life as it should be lived. I'm just about beginning to come to terms with what this means. Jesus came and showed us life as God would live it. Do you understand that? The life Jesus lived is life as God would live it. And the reason we say that is because Jesus is God. God lived among us. When you read the Gospels, you see the kind of things that God does. And you see them with a human face. Harry read a passage for us earlier, and I'm going to to close by reflecting on it just for a moment. One day, people came to Jesus and asked him a question, and it's a question very, very like the question I asked you a moment ago. What kind of people does God want us to be? They, they asked the question, what's the most important commandment? What's the most important thing we must do or way we must live? And remember Jesus' answer. This is God speaking. God's answer to the question I've asked you this evening. 
What kind of person ought we to be? We're to be people who love the Lord our God with all of our heart and our soul and our mind and our strength. You know, that sounds to me a lot like the life that David had been living. A passionate, energetic giving of all of who he was to God. And that's the life that we're called to as we follow Jesus. Whenever we look at David and whenever we look at Jesus even more so, we find something incredible. And as someone who grew up in the church, I must say I find this massively liberating. I find this to be good news. God isn't preoccupied with us being good or nice or respectable. A lot of those labels wouldn't sit very well with David and certainly not with Jesus. Those things are important, yes, but God can take care of those himself. What God wants from us is ourselves, our whole selves, our whole selves all of the time, our bodies, our minds, our souls, our hearts. He wants all of us. And whenever he has all of us, he promises to make us like Jesus, to pour his spirit more and more into our lives, to make us like his son, to make us like David, people after God's own heart. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the dynamic message of your word. Lord, we thank you that goodness and niceness and respectability aren't high on your agenda as they often are in our lives. We thank you that you call us to a much more dynamic thing. Lord, you call us to a life full of you. Lord, will you help us to grasp the excitement of what you call us to? Lord, you call us to throw open our hearts and our lives to welcome the presence of your mighty spirit, to begin to be shaped entirely by you and to become more and more and more like you. Lord, where we're fearful of that, will you speak words of reassurance to us? Lord, will you make us a community of people who are entirely sold out on you? who love you with their hearts and their minds and our souls and all of our strength. Lord, help us to take our eyes entirely from this world and all its dictates of how we should live and help us to have our eye only on you, our lives open entirely to you. 
Lord, help us to trust you. Amen.